You're listening to the Script Lab Podcast. I'm Shani Edwards. Even if you don't listen to screenwriter John August's podcast, Script Notes, with fellow screenwriter Craig Mazin, you've certainly seen some of John August's films. Most recently, he co-wrote the live-action version of Disney's Aladdin, but he's also had a longtime collaboration with director Tim Burton, penning such films as Frankenweenie, Corpse Bride, and Big Fish. His upcoming film, Summer Nights, is the hotly anticipated prequel to the beloved musical Grease. I caught up with August at his recent launch party in Hollywood for Highland 2.5, a brand new version of the screenwriting software he developed himself. In the podcast, we discuss what's new in the software, the challenges he faced turning Aladdin's animated characters into three-dimensional human beings, and his relationship with the enigmatic Tim Burton. Also, if you missed my recent podcast with James Vanderbilt, writer of the Netflix action comedy Murder Mystery, please take a listen. He shares the one book all screenwriters must read and why white space on the page is your friend. But let's get back to John August. Hi. Hi. So nice to talk with you. You too. So I should tell my listeners that I am here at the Highland 2.5 launch party, which is screenwriting software that you developed. Yeah, so it's originally a, an app that we developed for melting PDFs uh, of screenplays down into editable files. Ultimately, it became my screenwriting app. Now we use it for all kinds of writing. So I write, write my books in it, too. People use it to write stage plays. We write, use it for all sorts of things. That's great. So sell me on it. If I use Final Draft, why would I want to come and, and check out Highland? If you're using Final Draft... Um, you have a set of assumptions about how a screenwriting app should work, which are based on the 80s, maybe early 90s. Um, I had to start writing screenplays in Microsoft Word because there wasn't Final Draft. And Final Draft was a huge improvement over writing in Microsoft Word. Um, but the times have sort of moved on. And the assumptions that Final Draft was making is that you should have to tell the app what every little thing on screen is. That this is a character's name. This is a dialogue. This is a parenthetical. This is a transition. It's 2019, and our computers are smart enough to be able to tell what it is you're doing. So in Highland 2, you just start typing, and the system is smart enough to figure out, oh, that uppercase word, that's probably a character's name. Oh, the line underneath that, that must be dialogue. It ends in a T-O and a, a colon, that's probably a transition. And so for a screenwriter, it's just much simpler. If you're coming from Final Draft or Fade In or one of the older style apps, it's a little jarring at first because like, you feel like you should have to do more. Um, but you don't. If you haven't used anything, then it's really then the learning curve is really simple because you just just start typing. Just you type it like you would type an email, and except it, you end up with a beautiful screenplay. Yeah, I actually had a chance to take a look at it and investigate it, and it does have some features that I really appreciated that Final Draft doesn't have. I I'm sure Final Draft consulted screenwriters when they developed their software, but there's many times I feel like if you would just talk to me, this would be better. Well. You can consult screenwriters, but you can also be a screenwriter. And so as a screenwriter, I just developed a tool that I wish I could use every day, and I do use it every day. And so I think that is one of the fundamental differences, is that it really was built by a screenwriter the way that I wanted to work. An example would be the bin. Um, so, so often as a writer, you have little bits of text that you want to hold on to, but they don't belong in the script anymore. So you'll make like a scratch file, and you'll copy and paste it into a scratch file, in Highland, you just drag it over to the edge, and it goes into a thing called the bin, and it's just sitting there. And so you can always get back to those little bits that you've cut and find them and bring them back in. 
it's just it's the kind of the way you kind of wish it always worked and it, we just built it for you it does seem to like it thinks about what the process is after you finish the screenplay like highlighting the actors roles for a reading like all of that stuff like to me that's kind of a no-brainer but you know if, if final draft does it i don't i don't know yeah you know. i mean final draft will build a lot of of things that look like tools but i don't know anybody who uses them and i wanted to make sure that we were only putting things in the app that really you could see what the value would be and so an example would be the gender analysis tool we introduced a year ago um it's really simple it takes 30 seconds just tell us like which of your characters are male female or something else and it just builds a little bar chart so it's like who, who's what and not just giving you a report but letting you sort of explore so you could click like well what if that was what if that male character was female like how would that change the balance of things um it's a thing you could do on paper you could just mark it with a highlighter but like computers are really good at counting things so let's have them count lines let's have them count you know individual words spoken and you get a sense of this is what i'm doing here i want to make sure i was only putting in tools that felt like you know, a person would actually use them. Yes, and to clarify, this is a tool that counts how many female roles versus male roles, and that might actually be something that studios are looking at as we move forward. Absolutely. So in Highland 2.5, one of the things we built in is not only can you, you know, explore that yourself in a little pop-down, but you can actually export a report that has beautiful graphs that really show this is, as of this draft, this is what the breakdown would be. And it's helpful. It, it lets you know sort of where you're at, and if there's opportunities, you know, discuss them. Right. Well, I'm dying to ask you questions about writing. Please. Okay, great. So you just had the really successful Aladdin. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, you worked with Guy Ritchie. Mm -hmm. What was the biggest challenge adapting the animated version from, I don't know, the 90s? I guess 80s? I don't know. Yeah, it was a long time, a long ago, time ago. Into um, a live action for 2019. For me, the... The touchstone was that it could be largely the same story, but the characters had to have human motivations rather than cartoon motivations. Um, Can you clarify what's yeah, the difference? So, and I think that the, the adaptation of Cinderella did a good job of that, where it was largely the same story beats, um, but you felt like the, the characters were living human beings who were doing things for human reasons. And there's just different expectations you put on characters who are live action versus animated if you tried to just shoot the same script um it wouldn't work for an animated movie into live action so that was um things like jasmine jasmine is a you know you know i i want to love her but in the animated movie she doesn't she's not doing a lot and she's just sort of like doesn't want to get married well that's not a, that's not a lot so i really wanted her to, to be exploring her role in ruling this kingdom and um, to do that, I needed to give her someone she could talk to other than a tiger, so she wasn't having a bunch of monologues. <laughs> so the Dahlia character was added there. I wanted to look at sort of what the relationship is between um, Aladdin and the genie, because, you know, Robin Williams is fantastic, but he's playing this sort of cocaine uncle, this crazy wild man. <laughs> and, um, but even when you look at the lyrics, you've never had a friend like me. Well, what if they are more buds? Like, what if they are pals and a little bit more peers? How does that change the relationship and, and um, the, the trust that forms between them? So it was really looking at sort of what are the human relationships within the story that are interesting that we can really make it a reason why we're doing a live action movie rather than just we're just doing one. That's great. Um, also, you've had a very long collaboration with Tim Burton. Um, I'm wondering what you learned from working with Tim Burton. He's obviously 
really into fantasy, very creative. I mean, I know you are too, but, you know, he has a specific style. And I'm just curious if that rubbed off on you, you in know, any way. What I think people don't appreciate enough about Tim is that he works really hard. And sometimes I think there's this misguided notion that because someone is a brilliant artist like he is, that everything just comes easily to him. And people don't see the immense amount of preparation that he does. And there's giant notebooks, which I don't get to look through, but I know he's doing the work scene by scene, figuring out what is this scene to him in his mind. He's doing watercolors, he's doing sketches, he's, he's figuring out what this scene is to him. Um, and, you know, I think that can be really inspiring to someone who's listening to this, think like, oh, it's not just that they're a genius. Sometimes they are geniuses, but they're also working really hard. And you working really hard and working at your craft really hard can get you some pretty great places. That's great. Um, I want to ask you about Summer Loving. Talk about it. Um, I can tell you that I don't think the title is Summer Loving. I think the title is Summer Nights, which is actually the, the title of the song. <laughs> okay. Ingress, but it, it, the first thing that was announced in the trades or sort of leaked in the trades it said Summer Loving. Um, I can only say that it is a prequel to the movie Grease, uh, that it is a fantasy come to life for me, um, and it's been an absolute joy to work on. So I have no idea what is going to be happening in the months and years ahead, but just the process of writing it has been a tremendous joy. Is it a musical? Oh, it's a musical. Yeah, Great. I think that's, yes. I don't understand Great. why you would make this movie not No, of course, musical. but yeah, I so, don't know. Yeah. Um, your Dreamcast. Um, it's way too soon for a Dreamcast. Um, but I'll say that there are, there are, I think, some really great opportunities um, in this, not just for filling in roles that you'd expect, but some really great new roles. And um, again, make a reason why you make this movie in 2019, that it's going to be very different than a movie you would have made in 2009 or you know, 99. So. Or, two, or 1976. Or, I mean, I yeah. had the little record player and I would just sing along to those songs when I was a little girl so yeah I had not seen Greece um as a kid um I only had the soundtrack and so I built the story based on what I thought happened um on that and uh, then seeing the movie I was like I was largely right yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I want to ask you a couple of craft questions these are things that we get um Questions about all the time. The first one is subtext. Yeah. I feel like I understand subtext, but whenever I write articles about it, people always write to me and say, that's not subtext. So maybe you could help clarify. Oh, wow. I would say subtext is the thing the character is not saying, um, but they clearly are trying to say, or they're clearly trying to get across. And, um, you know, there can be subtext that's not dialogue, but that's really, I think, more, more what we're talking about in subtext is is the lines that, that carry extra weight beyond the actual surface meaning of what the characters are saying. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's craft, it's art, it's, it's, it's not a thing that's easily defined. I um, came from the theater, so I grew up reading older, uh, uh, when I was older, reading like Harold Pinter. And so to me, that subtext, those short little lines that don't say what they're really thinking and feeling. So for me, that's really clear, but I don't know how many screenwriters read Pinter. Well, you know, sometimes you can hear characters speaking in their subtext, and it, it makes you sort of wince a bit, because no real person would say that. Um, but there's also times where meaning gets lost because writers become too obsessed with like, you know, not being on the nose and, and, and being oblique. So it's always a balancing act. Right. 
Okay, so this is a, a selfish question. Um, the dreaded third act. I always think I'm going to get there, and it's going to be easy because I've done all the work, but it never is. Yeah. So is there something I'm missing? Because I feel like I've been told the first act has to, a has to add up to equal the third act, almost like a reverse or something. You know, classically, I mean, the third act, it's, it's the narrowing. It's, it, it, it should both be surprising and seem... Of course, you were going to head, head there. Um, of course, that was the, was where these characters were headed. Um, when you're having third act problems, you are really having second and first act problems. I mean, you, however you were building these things wasn't taking you to the right place. I will say that for my own process, I tend to write the last 10 pages of the script very early on in the process. So I get a feeling of, a feeling of where I'm trying to head. Um, so And also, so I have the same enthusiasm for those last 10 pages as I did for the first 10 pages. Interesting. Um, because when you start a project, there is this rush of love that you have for it. And if you can use some of that to really look at what those last 10 pages are, even if they're going to maybe ultimately change, just gives you a sense of like, I'm headed here. So every movie is sort of like a road trip. And so if you're getting, going from LA to New York, it's important to know that you're going from LA to New York and really have those mapped out. And then I can feel safer wandering a little bit across the middle of the country and seeing interesting things because I know, okay, ultimately I am going to get to that place. Right. Um, I guess it's when I think about resolution and you have to kind of resolve all your characters. And I'm working on a screenplay right now with four protagonists. So I find it very challenging to find satisfying resolutions for each one. And so perhaps maybe you're right. Maybe that needs to go back to the first act. Yeah, or it could be a, a, an issue that in thinking that you have four protagonists, you may actually have sort of like one sort of central dramatic question that the, the characters are asking in a slightly different way, but like maybe the movie wants to get to a place rather than those characters getting to a place. So maybe you really need to think about like, what conclusion is the movie drawing versus what's, what are the individual, those four individual characters achieving? Exactly, okay. Um, what is your, is there a project, like a dream project that you've never been able to do that you would love to see made? You know, I have a couple things that aren't going to get made because another version of it got made. Like, I wrote a script for Preacher that I really loved, but because the series happened, I don't think the Preacher script will ever happen. Um, I wrote an H.P. Lovecraft movie that I really liked a lot, um, and I love Lovecraftian things. It just, it just wasn't the right thing. And I wrote a movie for Tim called Monster Apocalypse, um, which was a giant robots fighting giant monsters thing, which um, Pacific Rim sort of knocked out of the running for that. So I would say that in every screenwriter's career, there are going to be a lot of unmade movies. And some of the, my favorite work are those unmade movies. And so in my head, they exist, but they don't exist that other people can see them. And that's a frustration. Got it. Um, you have a daughter. What does she think of your movies? Oh, my daughter likes most of my movies. Um, she hasn't seen all of them, obviously, but, uh, um, you know, because that's some R-rated movies that she's not, not, <laughs> of not, course, not, not ready of course. for yet. I mean, like Aladdin. And... Um, I think she generally likes them, but I think there's, you know, it's uh, like all teenagers, there's a necessary separation between sort of like what dad does and what other people does. I think, um, you know, where I have actually been excited to be, see her get to see early cuts of things and just get her true, honest reaction to things. A great example would be uh, we were walking on the sets of Frank and Weenie, so the stop-motion sets of Frank and Weenie. She was young at this time, six or seven, 
and we got to the part where we got to a thing and oh and this is where um sparky the dog gets hit by the car and she like sat down on the floor and wouldn't move until we talked her through sort of like no no sparky comes back to life through magic and uh it was a really helpful for me to be able to see that oh god i don't think she's ever seen frank and weenie i think I've, 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 I've ruined her but it was helpful for her to it's helpful to have her reaction so we could know like oh man we've got to make it clear to parents um that this is not going to be a sad movie about a dead dog. This is going to be a happy, joyful movie about a dog uh, who comes back to life. And um, that, that was helpful. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. I, I wish you the best of luck with this uh, 2.5 Highland, mm -hmm. the software. And best of luck for the next movie. Thank you very much. Thank you.